Welcome to the Network Marketing Heroes Podcast, hosted by 40-year network marketing veteran, author of best-selling books, The Four-Year Career, and Mach 2 with Your Hair on Fire, and world-renowned speaker, Richard Bliss Brook. When it comes to success in network marketing, who better to learn from than leaders who have actually done it? Listen as Richard interviews top leaders and gives you a behind-the-scenes look at how they did it. You'll get incredible tips and duplicable actions you can do right now to build your own four-year career. Stay tuned after this episode for an exclusive discount code to get 10% off Richard's easy-to-use tools that will help propel your network marketing business to the next level at blissbusiness.com. Hey, everybody. Richard Blissbrook here with yet another global influencer interview. And today I have an extraordinary opportunity, something that I have envisioned for at least three years now. Somebody that I have followed that is an extraordinary inspiration, absolutely brilliant thinker, strategist. Probably what I love about him best is how well he executes his own strategies. So. He has extraordinary integrity and credibility and fabulous ideas and the kind of thing that all of us, if we could just get a piece of what he has to offer and implement it in our lives, well, we're gonna have quantum leaps. So I have the opportunity to sit here today with none other than James Clear, who's coming to us from his home in Columbus, Ohio. James, say hi. Hello, yeah, good to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. So James and I, James and I, he I'm sure doesn't remember because I was one of those people that said, "Hey, can I have a picture?" <laughs> we met uh, three or four years ago at an event in Boise, Idaho, and that event came up on my radar. And two of the people that I find the most fascinating to listen to are James Clear and, and Seth Godin, and both of them were speaking live at this event. So um, Kimmy and I went from uh, Hawaii, grabbed some of our team members from Coeur d'Alene. And we went and listened to um, what these people have to say about marketing, about integrity, about high performance, uh, human performance. And what I love about James most is, is his, the way he focuses on uh, the daily ritual and the habits and compounding, if you will, those little new things that we can do on a daily basis. Sometimes I call it compounding consistency. It's like compounding money. You know, if you take a penny and you double it every day, at the end of 30 days, it's worth over $5 million. But if you double it every other day, it's worth 163. (laughs) So the compounding of consistency is really fascinating stuff and it has great applications for everything we do. And James just released, I asked him for this interview after he just released his most recent book, Uh, Atomic Habits. And I want you to all go get that book, get it on Audible, get it on Amazon, get it from Barnes and Noble. It's in over 600 Barnes and Nobles in uh, airports. It's um, got thousands of five-star reviews already on Audible, um, uh, Amazon top bestseller, uh, New York Times bestseller, USA Today bestseller already. And I think James has only been out, what, like three months? So, Kudos to you for for launching such an extraordinary work of art. 
So we'll learn more about James as we get into the interview, and I want to dive in now and get some context for who we're talking to, because most of this interview is going to be about the work that James does and how it applies to all of us. But I'd like for the audience to hear who was James Clear before he was James Clear? <laughs> I know that's an odd question, but it kind of speaks to how did you grow up? Who raised you? Where did you grow up? And and I'll kind of flush out, I, what I want to hear is, who were you before? And then what happened in that transition that you transformed into somebody that decided to give back in a, in a huge quantum way all over the world with these ideas? So who were you before? Yeah, well, thank you so much for the kind introduction. That's very nice. Um, and I, uh, I've been... Um, blown away by the reception for the book. And uh, it's just, it's great to see people enjoying it so much. So thank you. And um, my, as far as my background goes, uh, I was born and raised in Ohio, uh, grew up in Hamilton, Ohio. Uh, my parents, my dad worked in insurance. Uh, he was a, like in the, a marketing representative, would go to different insurance agencies and, and talk to them. Um, and uh, my mom was a nurse when I was first born. And then uh, when I was five and my sister was three, uh, my sister was diagnosed with leukemia. So my mom took time off to take care of her uh, and then ended up staying home with us for the next like 10 years or so. And then eventually uh, when I went to high school, she ended up going back to work as a teacher uh, and has spent the last few decades working in um, kindergarten classrooms and uh, elementary school classrooms, specifically with autistic kids uh, and um, and high needs uh, children. So anyway, so that's kind of like my background, where I came from. A lot of family time when I was young. Uh, my grandparents lived five minutes away. We'd go to their house every weekend and hang out with them and uh, all my cousins would come over. So I think every Sunday for the first 18 years of my life, I would see like all of my extended family. So we'd have like 15 or uh, 16 people together um, the whole time. So, wow. uh, so a lot of time spent with family. And then uh, I would say the big themes of my childhood, one was uh, I really liked reading and learning. So I, I was always just into school. Uh, you know, some people don't like school. A lot of entrepreneurs seems like different things that they don't like about school, but uh, but I loved it. Uh, I was always really into it. And then the other big theme was sports. Uh, so my dad played professional baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals, played in the minor leagues for them. Um, and he was a pitcher. And so, you know, growing up, I always wanted to be uh, a baseball player too. And that was a big part of my childhood. And then uh, there were a bunch of other sports that worked their way in there as well. Basketball, swimming, um, and then just a variety of other things, football, tennis, racquetball, that stuff, just like occasionally. But um but yeah, so those were, those were kind of the big pieces of my early story. And uh, I think that there's a lot that I learned from school and from family and from sports that has woven its way into my story now. Uh, those themes are, they still pop up occasionally in the book and Tom Cabot's and they certainly impact the work that I do on a day-to-day on -day basis. Yeah, well that, uh, the story of getting together every Sunday for 15 years, um, I mean, that's, that's the last of an era of family values that that's so rare today yet. It was, so it does common. feel rare. It feel, I, I don't know many friends that had experiences like that. Um, it was, yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't know any different at the time, right. It was just what we did. Right. But, um, right. but I, I do even now looking back at 
my same family, but for this next generation, I don't know that that'll be happening. Um, right. So it's, uh, yeah, it is, it was a, it was a special time. It was a, an interesting uh, and cool childhood in, in that sense. Where'd you go to college? So finished uh, high school, went to Denison University, uh, which is a liberal arts school uh, in um, central Ohio. Uh, really enjoyed it. Didn't know it at the time, but uh, it was the only division uh, three school, that, the only liberal arts school that I applied to. Uh, all the other places were big uh, schools, Notre Dame, Xavier, Ohio State, uh, Purdue, places like that. And um, I... Uh, I just, I didn't realize it, but it was the perfect place for me to go. Um, I did much better in that environment, both academically and athletically. Uh, I ended up, uh, I played baseball all the way through college and ended up having a good career there. And academically, I feel like I thrived in a smaller environment. Um, you know, whereas I ended up, I went to graduate school afterward and got my uh, MBA from Ohio State. And uh, it was fine. Um, but I, uh, it's impossible to not be a number at a school that big. Um, and, uh, and I enjoyed the, the more hands-on closer touch, tighter knit community of a small school. Um, so, so anyway, so I, I went to both of those, uh, schools, finished graduate school, and that was when my entrepreneurial career began. So one of the stories that I, um, love that you talk about is your first entrepreneurial enterprise where you (laughs) had this brilliant idea for an app which flopped and you learned some things about you and about motivation for business. Um, can you talk about that? Tell us that story. So um, the, the very first business I tried to create, I mean, I, I did little stuff on the side, right? Like I was, when I was in college, I would like sell people's textbooks for everybody on my floor, like sell those on Amazon and stuff. And you know, and then like I'd keep five bucks for each one or something. But, but the first actual business I tried to create was this, this app company. And uh, I finished graduate school around 2010. So the iTunes app store was still fairly new. And there were a lot of stories at that time about people making a bunch of money from iPhone apps. You know, there were guys that were starting these like games or, you know, different game apps that if you hit the top 10, they'd be making $500,000 a month or something from these things. And so there was kind of this like gold rush kind of mentality around that at the time where it was like, oh, if you could start the next hot app, you know, whatever. So, so I got done and I thought I was going to do that. And, um, I, I hired this, I didn't know how to do any programming or development. Um, I had a little bit of money saved up and I hired this development company, uh, to build an app for me. So I did the design, uh, and like the, the just kind of sketching of what the app would do. And then they programmed it. And I think I paid them, uh, $1,600, uh, to build it. And, uh, we launched it. And immediately I realized that there, <laughs> that it was not going to work out well. And, uh, in the lifetime of the app being on the store, it was on the store for a year. Uh, I think it made $17 in revenue. So right off the bat, immediate, you know, $1,500 loss. And, um, I, uh, I learned a lot from that though, because the, the first thing that I learned was, uh, I thought, well, if you build it, they will come right? You build this app and then people find out about it. But what I realized through that was, huh, I don't know anything about marketing, right? I didn't know why, why would someone sign up for something? Why does somebody buy a product? Why does somebody join an email list? I didn't have any answers to those questions. And so uh, I launched this product and I didn't know how to get the word out or how to, or what would be compelling to people. Um, So 
I thought about that a lot and went back to the drawing board and started to read more and realized that the way to, uh, one way to market effectively is you build an email list. And the way that you build an email list is you write things that people want to sign up for and they want to hear more about. And so suddenly I shifted from building this product and hoping people would find it and love it to let me create something of value for free and build an audience around it. And then once I have the audience, then I'll sell something. Now, I should say as a caveat here, I don't think that's the only way to build a business. There are a lot of ways to do it. And uh, you can certainly start with a product before you have an audience. But the way that ended up working for me was I started with the email list and built that out. And then after focusing just on providing value for a year or two, um, then I actually offered a product. And so, so I had this change in trajectory, change in approach, and I started writing articles and trying to build an email list. And in the beginning, it was just a method to grow an audience and try to build a business. But what I discovered was the more that I started writing, the more I realized, huh, I kind of like doing this. Um, I sort of, I, I didn't think I would like writing as much as I do. And so that was when I started to get the ideas for, well, maybe I should write some books or maybe I should, you know, write a course or things like that. Uh, maybe I should continue writing articles each week. And so it was sort of a process of discovery in that sense. Um, I never set out to be an author. But, uh, but I started out of necessity because I, I didn't know why people would sign up or join something. So how many years did you spend writing and building the email list until it turned into a viable business? Months yeah. or years? So uh, timeline here. So the, the, um, I graduated from graduate school in uh, mid 2010. I launched the app right around end of 2010, beginning of 2011. Um, so uh, all throughout 2011 and uh, most of 2012, I was just trying different ideas, trying to write, trying to build things. Uh, the way that I was paying my bills is I was doing some web design on the side. So I would occasionally take a client, build a website for them, and then you know use that money to fund my writing and blogging and uh, business ventures for a little, for a couple more months. Right. So I did that for a while. And then November 12th, 2012 is when I wrote my first article on jamesclear.com. So after, so it basically was about two years that it took me to figure out what I wanted to write about, how to build the audience, how to build um, the, uh, the website and topics that I wanted to write about and all that stuff. And um, I was making a full-time income from my own business and not having to take on freelance clients after about 18 months. That was about how long it took. So um, how many articles did you write in that 18 months? Well, uh, there's a little bit of uh, crossover, like uh, confusion with that because the, I wrote probably 50 articles or so. Um, but for, for different websites and for different projects. Um, and then when I started jamesclear.com, I wrote, over a hundred articles before I pitched the first product there. So, um, so there's, there was writing in multiple outlets, but, um, but yeah, yeah. So it took the, the short answer is it took about 18 months to make a full-time living. Uh, and it really took more like about three years before I was kind of really humming along. So the contrast that I, um, was looking to create there, which we're set up for is one of the things that you talked about in your story about the app was how you, were sort of taken with the idea of making all the money right away up front, <laughs> you know, launching this app and becoming a multimillionaire. 
and then figuring out that not a lot of cheese down that tunnel unless maybe you're super lucky or a genius or something. And then what you fell into was more the work ethic and the idea of priming the pump for, well, in your case, 50 articles and then 100 articles and years of priming the pump before you even ask somebody to buy something for you. So could you talk about the contrast between the immediate gratification mentality and what might be commonly referred to as the work ethic of priming the pump and what that's all about. So, I mean, it's a great point that you bring up. Um, you know, I'm not the first person to, to jump for strategies like that, right? Like, I think it's <laughs> natural for all of us to want to have a shorter path to success if you could have that. If you can find it out, why would you put in extra work? So, so we're kind of naturally looking for that sort of thing. But the downside is you end up falling for all kinds of stuff or you end up trying to take shortcuts and so on. And, um, you know, the, the funny or the ironic part of that is I, I don't know the stories of these people that were launching these apps and doing really well at that time. But my guess is they probably had been a programmer for like 10 years and they had all these skills and they had a bunch of a backlog of a bunch of other projects that they had learned from. And then just by being in the right place at the right time, the app store is available and having this background of knowledge, they were able to launch a best-selling app. So even for them, even for the people that you think it's moving fast for, it usually isn't. Um, and in the case of, you know, from where I stand now, you know, now Atomic Habits is out, I have this uh, New York Times bestseller. The process of writing a best-selling book from start to finish for me was really about six years. Right. Um, and when people see it now, if that's their first introduction, they think, oh, this guy came out of nowhere. His first book was a bestseller. Uh, but actually, it was a much, much longer process that was all organized towards one goal. And so I think, um, I think what you're getting at here is probably a more universal truth, which is that uh, the slow way is often the fast way. Uh, if you if you spent less time looking for shortcuts and tactics and all the quick workarounds and just put the work in, it's almost like it would be fast. That's the faster way to get it done in the long run anyway. Um, so I did, uh, for my own personal evolution, I did need uh, some of those failures and mistakes and lessons learned to sort of uh, guide me toward a more work ethic related approach a more priming the pump related approach a more um, process over outcome uh, type of style. And that is very central to my philosophy. Now, funny thing is too, if I look back on my, the other parts of my story, if I look back on my athletic career, for example, well, that was very much process over outcome. I was never the fastest kid or the best kid or the most talented one on any of my teams. Um, and I only ended up having a really good career because I just never gave up on it and kept working for 17 years. You know, like from the time I started playing the sport to the time I finished, I just got a little bit better every year for 17 years, but there was never a, a quick flip of the switch. And then suddenly I become an entrepreneur and it's like, I forget all those lessons. Right. And you, uh, and so it, in a way I was just learning to return to the type of style that had already served me so well in other areas. Yeah, I'm not a biological parent, but I imagine parenting is kind of long, along the same, same lines as parents probably kind of think they maybe have it figured out by the time they don't need to parent anymore. And <laughs> so they spent, you know, 21 or 25 years 
practicing the art. So what that leads me to, James, is, and you, you speak about this so brilliantly with the calendar idea, the tracking concept, which I'm a huge fan of in, in the business that I teach people to do, uh, which is network marketing, which is, you know, you can't improve what you can't measure. And, you know, one of the most common things that, that I talk to people about is I ask, if I ask somebody that I'm coaching or working with, so, you know, what happened last month? You know, how many of these did you do last month? And, and the most common answer is, well, I think quite a few. <laughs> and I don't know what quite a few is, and they don't know what quite a few is. And if we can actually forensically go in and figure out what quite a few is, it's actually not quite a few. Mm. So the whole idea of tracking with the calendar and then especially, you know, creating the motive for the wins, because when you take the work ethic process route, the turtle approach, if you will, um, you know, the gratification can be years down the road. So my question is, how do you, how did you and how do you make the process and the journey the, the success? How do you make that the end game? How do you fall in love with the process so that every day you feel like you're winning, even though you may not be able to deposit it in the bank account or you know, quantify it specifically. That's, it's, that I think really is good like question. the holy I mean, grail secret. Um, and I think you've mastered that. How do you do that? Well, I think, uh, so I, first of all, I, I think we should divide it into kind of two phases. So the, the first phase is what you need to do to get to that point. All right. And then the second phase is once you've crossed that, that barrier. So, um, Ultimately, falling in love with the process. Let's talk about the second phase first. So ultimately, falling in love with the process, um, committing to that kind of style, that type of process-oriented approach, work ethic-oriented approach, is really about adopting that identity, right? Being that kind of person, right? I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. I'm not worried about what the scale says. I'm not worried about what the weight on the bar is. I'm worried about, am I committing to the process? Am I getting in there and training each day? or I'm the kind of person that makes sales calls every day, right? I'm not worried about whether they pan out or not. I just make sure I show up and I get my calls done or I get my invites done or whatever they are. Um, and once you identify as that kind of person, that that's just, that's just who I am, that's what I do. Well, then I think it becomes easier to stick to that process because doing the action reinforces being the kind of person you wanna be. So you know, now if I show up at the gym it doesn't feel like a sacrifice or an effort because it's just reinforcing this vote of, Oh, that's who I am. I'm the type of person that doesn't miss workouts. So I think that uh, once you have that identity, each action reinforces it. That's ultimately where we're trying to get to, but there's sort of this Valley of death in the building of any habit or the, the creation of any process before you get to that. Right? So the, the first time you go to the gym, you feel uncomfortable, uncertain. I'm not sure if I'm in the right place. It doesn't feel like my territory. It doesn't feel normal. Um, Stephen Pressfield in The War of Art, he has this great uh, kind of analogy of, of becoming a writer, of developing that identity. And he talks about where you write, your typewriter, your chair and your computer, your notepad and your journal, whatever it is for you, 
that is your territory, the same way that like a wolf has a territory that it owns, right? And when it starts to feel like your territory, that becomes a very powerful thing. You feel comfortable there. You feel like this is where I'm supposed to be just to do that process. But the wolf only develops that feeling by being in the territory every day, by walking around it for a while. And it's the same way for a writer or for a meditator or an exerciser or a salesperson, whatever your habit is you're trying to build. You can only develop that feeling of this is my identity. This is my territory. This is my home base, my home field. Uh, once you've shown up enough. And so the key question I think is how do you remain consistent before you feel that way? So now let's transition to talking about the first part of that process. Right. So going from zero to this is my identity. Uh, that's really the key part of falling in love with the process. And I think that you can do this in a couple of different ways. The first question to ask yourself is who do I want to become? Not what do I want to achieve, but who do I want to become? So if you ask yourself the normal question, it's what do I want to achieve? Well, I want to lose 40 pounds in six months, or I want to make six figures this year, or I want some tangible outcome. That's, that's the what. But if you translate that and ask yourself, who is the type of person that could achieve that outcome? Who's the type of person that could lose 40 pounds? Who's the type of person that could earn six figures? And then you start to realize, well, maybe it's the type of person that doesn't miss workouts, or maybe it's the type of person that makes sales calls every day. And what that does is it transitions your attention from the outcome or the result to the process. And so now you realize what you need to focus on. And then the second part of this process is making it satisfying to do the process each day before you have that identity. And uh, this is where habit tracking comes in. This is where that measurement and that kind of analysis comes in. So a couple things you can do to make the process more enjoyable before you have fallen in love with it. The first thing is you can just track each instance of you showing up. So my dad, for example, he enjoys swimming. Well, each time that he goes to the pool and he swims, he comes back and he has this little calendar and he puts an X on that day. And at the end of the month, he adds up all the X's and looks at how many workouts he had this month and how does that compare to last month? And so that little measurement, right, that's, um, that's the difference between your example of quite a bit or quite a few um, and what actually happened, right? He's able to actually see how often he's showing up. So that's the simplest form of measurement. Um, another thing that you can do is once you have those the little X's kind of adding up, once you can see that streak going, you can start to adopt two different mantras that I think are really helpful for falling in love with the process. The first mantra or the first philosophy is don't break the chain. So you get that little X going, you've done, you've done your sales calls three or four days in a row. All right, the fifth day, don't break the chain. Doesn't matter how good or how bad they are. Doesn't matter who you're calling. Doesn't matter how you feel about how it went. Just don't break the chain. Um, and then the second piece is every habit streak ends at some point. So every chain will be broken at some point. You'll get sick. Your kids need something for you. You have to travel for work, whatever it is, something throws you off. When that happens, the second mantra to keep in mind is never miss twice. So don't break the chain, but when you do never miss twice. And so it's like, well, you know, this is particularly true with like diets for whatever reason, people get very all or nothing with diets, right? They start one, they do it for four days. And then on the fifth day, their friends want to go to happy hour or they binge eat a pizza or something. And I think, Oh, I blew it. I knew I wasn't going to stick to this diet. So why bother? 
but never miss twice tells you, well, I wish I hadn't missed the diet. I wish I hadn't binge ate the pizza, but never miss twice. So let me focus on making the next meal a healthy one. Or I wish I hadn't uh, gone through all of yesterday without making any sales calls, but never miss twice. So let me make sure I wake up tomorrow and I start things off on the right foot. And if you can do that, if you can embrace those two strategies, don't break the chain, but when you do, never miss twice. Then you turn around at the end of the year and you realize that those slip ups and mistakes are just a little blip on the radar, right? They don't mean a whole lot, but that's only true if you never miss twice. Right. So never miss twice must lead to the compounding of the 1% increase. So can you speak to the essence of atomic habits and your work around you know, what happens in a year when you compound consistency and you apply that 1%, uh, maybe speak to the quantum increases that we can expect getting 1% better? So I like to refer to habits as the compound interest of self-improvement. And the reason I like that phrase is that the same way that money multiplies through compound interest, you know, your example of a penny doubling every day, for example, um, people understand that and that you can actually see it mathematically, right? It starts out very low and, you know, you're saving for retirement in the first decade or two doesn't do a whole lot. And then all of a sudden you hit this hockey stick portion of the curve and takes off. Well, habits are not exactly like that. It's not, it's not a pure mathematical equation, but man, it feels like that on a lot of days. You know, the difference between making a choice that's 1% better or 1% worse is generally, it feels kind of insignificant in the moment. You know, like what is the difference between eating a burger and salad or eating a burger and fries for lunch or eating a salad on most days? Not that much, you know, like the, you, you, your body looks basically the same in the mirror at the end of the night, your weight hasn't really changed. But if you compound that habit, you keep repeating it day in and day out, you turn around five or 10 or 15 years later and you realize, wow, those daily choices really did matter. And so the point here, and the reason I like that phrase, the compound interest of self-improvement is that all the greatest returns, all the biggest outcomes are delayed with your habits. It's performing the action today often doesn't feel that meaningful, but if you can maintain that consistency of showing up and carving out a small advantage, making a little 1% improvement each day, then you turn around and you end up much, much better in the long run. Um, you know, in the book, I have this graph of the actual math of this, right? If you get 1% better each day for 365 days, so 1.01 to the 365th power, you end up 37 times better at the end of the year. You get 1% worse and you drive yourself almost all the way down to zero. And again, we're talking about margins, about differences that don't feel like a lot on any given day, but you end up in a very different place uh, depending on your ability to repeat that and find that small improvement. So um, the other thing that I really like about the 1% rule and this kind of idea of focusing on getting 1% better is it feels reasonable, right? It feels like something you can actually do. You can, you can actually accomplish that. I'm not asking you to 10X your results overnight, but what I am asking is, can you show up with that work ethic, with that commitment to the process and try to find a 1% margin of, of improvement today? And I think most people armed with that philosophy can find some way to get better. And if they apply the 37 times better a year from now, so if you're 37 times, you know, in, in the business that I coach most people on is the business of network marketing, but it's all sales, it's all marketing. 
It's all relationship building. If you're 37 times better at presenting yourself, at asking questions, at listening, at being curious, at being authentic, at casting a vision, 37 times better. If your income's 37 times higher than it is now, (laughs) (laughs) that ought to be uh, worth paying attention to the concept. And I think that uh, that point that it's a a concept is the the key takeaway, right? Like I'm not predicting that your results will be exactly 37 times what they are next year uh, or this year that they will be next year. But, um, but the, the point is that if you commit to that philosophy, then you will unlock some surprising gains, surprising outcomes a year or two or three or four down the road. And the reason that is true is not only because your habits compound, but also because most people are not willing to stick with it for that long. And so the, the separation becomes more and more pronounced the longer that you let time work for you. And that's why, you know, I say this in the book as well, time magnifies the margin between success and failure. So getting 1% better, 1% worse doesn't feel like much on any day, any given day, but the longer that you have time working for you, if you have good habits, time becomes your ally. And if you have bad habits, time becomes your enemy. And so what you're really trying to do is create a little bit of leverage for yourself and then just let time do its thing. Yeah. And, and in any profession, any sport, any art, um, the, I mean, there, the, there's very few people that create that kind of gap with compounding that consistency. How do you do it, James, in your life? Can you share some of your rituals that have had you in the past fall in love with the process and be consistent and maybe some, some, some that you're taking on now? Well, so, you know, I I don't have any like secrets or any amazing things that probably people haven't heard of before, but I think there are a couple things that are worth mentioning or worth being reminded of. So uh, the first is not surprising, but it's simplicity. Uh, You know, it's a, a simplicity and focus are like two sides of the same coin. You know, the more complex things are, the more, the less simple they are, the more distractions you have, the harder it becomes to focus. And so for those first two years that I was building jamesclear.com, I only wrote articles and I wrote a new article every Monday and every Thursday. And that was very simple, but that level of clarity and level of focus allowed me to do a great job on those articles to try to find a way to get 1% better each day with my writing, with uh, the craft that I was doing, with the product I was putting out. And to give you an example of how to kind of apply this to your daily ritual or to your process. Um, you know, let's say that I, all right, I'm going to write a new article every Monday and Thursday. And I do that for a few weeks and then it starts to get boring, right? It's like, well, it's kind of routine. I'm used to it. I know what's, I know what to expect roughly. Uh, so that's the time when you need to start to look for another 1% gain. So now you can ask yourself, okay, I know what to expect of publishing an article every Monday and Thursday. Where can I get 1% better? Well, maybe I can try to write better opening sentences for the next few weeks. So let me go to the New York Times or to CNN or to uh, some of these other large websites uh, or maybe pull a couple books off the shelf and see how they write their opening sentences for their articles or for the opening sentence for each chapter. And then I can get an idea of what a good opening sentence looks like then I can use that as my research for trying to improve my opening sentences over the next few weeks. And once I do that, 
and that starts to feel routine and boring, well, then I can start to look at how do I improve the transitions between paragraphs or how do I improve the conclusion or my descriptions of something or tell a better story and on and on and on. And no matter what the process is, you can try to find this new detail, this new level of granularity to get 1% better at. You know, you mentioned uh, that a lot of your business is focused on relationships, networking, connecting with people, being curious, asking questions. Pick one portion of that process, right? How can I be 1% more curious? Well, maybe I start up a conversation with a person I normally wouldn't, and I do that for a few weeks and see how that goes. How can I be a better listener? Well, maybe I try to come up with three questions that a good listener would ask, and I focus on doing those over the next few weeks and so on. And if you can commit to this idea of let me get very granular about the fundamental habit, I think that that one, it keeps it interesting over time because you're not just doing the same thing every time, but perhaps just as important, it keeps your eye on the ball. It keeps you focused on the one core habit that makes, that moves the needle, that makes the biggest difference. Because I think one thing that takes people off course a little bit is getting wrapped up in like looking for a new solution after a few weeks, right? I write an article every Monday and Thursday. Now I'm six weeks in, I feel bored. So I'm like, well, maybe I should start a podcast instead, right? Or maybe I should do a YouTube channel instead of that or something. And you start jumping from strategy to strategy so much that you never stick with it long enough to get to the compound portion of the curve. You're just, it's like you're stuck in the little hockey stick portion and, uh, you're just down there on the ice with the puck and every time after a few weeks you jump to a new one and you never get up to the, the higher level. So um, my point there is that simplicity allows you to focus and once you have focused, then you start looking for different details and levels of granularity to get 1% better on. And I think if you can combine those two strategies, then you're going to end up sticking with something long enough to get a result and um, focusing on details that are small enough and interesting enough to keep you engaged rather than getting bored of the process. It feels like what we're talking about here is mastery. I think that's true. I think the process of mastery is um, one of the challenges is that to master anything, you have to repeat it for a long time. And the longer you repeat it, the more expected and boring and routine it becomes. And so one of the keys I think for mastering any topic is finding new things to get excited about. You know, like how can LeBron James find something exciting on a basketball court today? I mean, that is a very, that is a kind of, that's mostly a mental challenge. He's still as talented as anybody in the universe of playing the game, but can he figure out a way to be engaged? And so a lot of the challenge of mastery is not like once you have the basic skills figured out, it's, it's not the basic stuff anymore. It's more figuring out like, how can I be fully committed to this? And so I think finding new details to get excited about is a key part of that process. Yeah. And um, so you talked about being getting granular, which how I hear that is, is looking for the, the finer distinctions for mastery. So, you know, somebody might say, well, okay, you want me to get better at listening. So what is that? Like just hearing what people say? No, that's, that's just one granular piece of listening. That's one distinction. And like an analogy that I heard years ago that I loved is most of us have maybe one or two distinctions for snow, you know, hmm. cold and wet. Eskimos have 17 different distinctions for snow. 
Oh, that's great. That's because, really good. Yeah, that's a perfect example, you know, and there's a, there, there are some lessons just within that example too. You know, like one is you need to be in the thick of your craft, right? Eskimos are living with it every day. And so they, yeah. they see things that most people don't see just by that. The second piece though, is that you have to be curious enough to dig, right? If, if most people are like listening, how do I become a better listener? I just sit there and, you know, pay attention for a little while. But like, if you're not curious enough to read some books on how to be a good listener or to uh, investigate the process to think about what else is involved with that. It's hard to find those details. So curiosity is a, a big part of the process as well. Yeah. There's so many things. If you think about all the distinctions of everything that we do basketball, what inspired me to think about that is you're talking about LeBron James and basketball. Gosh, there, there's gotta be a thousand different things he could get better at mm. in basketball. If you get granular, like you said, and you look for, all the different distinctions. It's, um, it's crazy. All right, here, I'm going to transition. Um, I don't know the answer to this. I'm, I'm curious. Who has significantly influenced you in your journey? Who, hmm. ha, who, who do you love to read their James Clear articles? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great question. So, I mean, certainly the people who have had the biggest impact are ones that you haven't heard of, right? Like people are very personal to me, my dad, my grandfather, my parents, um, things like that. And, uh, and ultimately they've made the biggest impact, but from a professional standpoint, um, there, there are a lot of people that I take inspiration from or that I read that I, I really enjoy, but I'll give you a few that I feel like have been meaningful at different points along my journey. So, the, I think the first thing from a, a high level to consider here is that the best book to read or the best podcast to listen to or the best writer to follow is very contextual, right? So like, it's possible that you read, say, you know, I wrote a book about habits. Well, it's possible you read two books about habits and whichever one, if they're both good, you read first feels like the one that was like the most meaningful to you because that was where you first learned the material. And then the other one feels like, oh, it just kind of added an extra 5%. Um, and so timing has a lot to do with that. So yeah. uh, early on in my process or the right time for me, uh, the first people that I saw who were building a living from running a blog, from having stuff online were Leo Babalta, who writes Zen Habits, Chris Gilbo, who um, writes uh, uh, The Art of Nonconformity, Trey Ratcliffe, who is a photographer, and then Ben Kaznoka, who is an entrepreneur, and I met him at a conference. And he was the, that was the first time that I met a person who was making their living from the internet. Um, and so they had like an important part of my process because they kind of opened up this possibility space for me where it was like, oh, other people are doing this. I'm not just crazy, right? Like I could, uh, people are making this happen. So, so they played an important role for that point. Uh, then there are people who create work that is of a quality or have thoughts that are of a quality that I aspire to create. So Atul Gawande uh, is a physician. He works at um, uh, uh, Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, teaches at Harvard, uh, and has written multiple books in addition to being a surgeon. And when I, I think his, in my opinion, his best book is his first one, which is called Complications. And it's just about his life on the surgical uh, rotation. And, um, the quality of it, the storytelling, the writing was so good and so clear that I was like, I want to be able to write like that. 
you know, it was like, I read it and I thought it would be great to create something like that. Uh, Seth Godin is someone that you mentioned earlier. Seth, man, when you listen to Seth and he's on in an interview, it is so good. So clear. it's almost frustrating because he's so good. Um, and uh, so I love, uh, I love that uh, as far as a quality bar. Uh, Tim Urban, when he was writing Wait But Why, and it was really taking off, and he did his piece on the Fermi paradox and AI and superintelligence. It was a, it was a new standard uh, for what a blog post could be. It was like the same level of depth and thought that you could find in a book, but suddenly it was on, and nobody else was doing that at the time. I mean, he was spending 90, 120, 150 hours on one post. It was, it was a crazy commitment. Wow. Um, his Elon Musk series is 90,000 words long. You know, it's like, it's longer than most books. It's twice the length of my book. So um, I like things like that, that push me to think about like producing at a higher quality level or at a different bar. Um, I also really like them coming from other areas. So like Lin-Manuel Miranda and his creation of Hamilton. Hamilton is such an incredible work of art. Like it's, poetic, it's musical, there's dance, there's acting. It's just a remarkable blend of so many different pieces. And to produce something of that quality bar, it feels like, man, you just need to aspire to more. You know, like I look at my own work and I'm like, you need to be more ambitious. Um, and so I love stuff like that, that pushes me to, to think about um, raising the bar. So there are, those are just a handful of people. There, there are dozens more. I'm, I'm you know, forgetting plenty of people here, but, uh, but I, I love stuff like that, that makes me think you need to be playing a bigger game. So what is the bigger game for you? Like if I interview you five, six, seven years from now, what will be the story? What's, mm. what's on your path? Well, it's a great question. Um, so first there's like the work that I've done so far, right? About habits and performance and improvement, continuous improvement. And um, when I think about that work, I, one way that I could just summarize it is I want it to be high quality. So like if you were gonna unsubscribe from every newsletter that you belong to, I would want mine to be the last one on the list, right? I want, if you were like, oh, I just gotta hang on to one, I'd want it to be that. And I think that, you know, who knows if I'd be able to achieve that or not, but I like that as a metric for measuring what matters, right? For like trying to deliver that kind of level of quality. So, so that's when I think about the stuff that I'm doing now or have done recently. But then I came across this line the other day from Sam Altman, who's a, he's an entrepreneur and a, an investor. And uh, he said, I'll take as much time as I need between projects in my career. But whenever I decide to go in on something, I want it to be something that is big enough that it makes the rest of my career look like a footnote. And I love that idea, you know, cause I, and it's kind of relevant for me right now. I just finished this book. I'm thinking about what comes next, what, you know, what big project do I want to pour myself into? And I like that as a measure. I, I don't, I don't know if I'll settle on that. I don't know if it'll be possible, but I like that idea. How can I be ambitious enough that atomic habits and the work that I've done before feels like a footnote? Um, and so I'm not sure what the answer to that question is, but uh, I'll be toying with it a lot over the coming months. Quantum leap to quantum leap to quantum. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. Like and, that. you know, sometimes I think to be fair, you know, like uh, sometimes it's worth it to change the game you're playing a little bit, right? I just talked about uh, Hamilton and Lin-Manuel Miranda. Well, 
it's unlikely that he'll ever create a musical uh, or a Broadway play that's better than Hamilton. And it's very unlikely, perhaps impossible to have a quantum leap from there. But he just did, you know, a main screen of um, a big screen play, right? With Mary Poppins and did this actual like feature film thing. Well, that's, it's related, but it's a different game, right? It's different than Broadway. And so by changing the, the dynamic a little bit, he can do something. Um, he can feel like he's making a quantum leap, but it, he's not competing with himself. Uh, and so I, I'm thinking a lot about that too. Like maybe I should do something totally different. You know, maybe it should be like a little bit of a reinvention uh, and try to accomplish something big in a different field. So uh, who knows? We'll see, but um, I'll be excited about it either way. Yeah. Tell us about um, Habits Academy. I can't tell us about it because I haven't done it. Uh, but there's two things I'm going to do after the interview, both of which I could have done before the interview. One is I'm going to do my push-ups. <laughs> nice. Because that would be like a real problem if I interviewed you and I didn't do my push-ups. <laughs> and two, I'm going to subscribe to Habits Academy um, because I just can't think of anything more valuable than immersing myself in this these ideas. What is that program? You have I, – I just want to quantify for people listening too, by the way – um, you have like 445,000, I read, uh, people that subscribe to your blog. And so that's a pretty cool hockey stick. Mm. That, that would, I'd love to see that graph. Yeah. That's probably year. the place where I've experienced that the most tangibly in my own right. career in life is the, yeah. Well, you've, uh, I also read you got 6,000 people in the academy. So that's, that's also a um, huge revenue hockey stick and uh for the price that you're charging that seems to me like crazy good value what do you do in that program yeah so it's a very relevant question right now because uh we have been spending this entire week uh that we're recording this uh i've spent the rest of this week revamping the course so we're writing new scripts creating a new version we're shooting the new video soon uh, thinking a lot about how to update it and make it a perfect complement to Atomic Habits because I don't want the book and the course or the academy to like, you know, just feel like a repeat of each other. They need to work well together. Right. So uh, the, the answer to your question is the Habits Academy is kind of like my premier online training platform for how to build good habits and break bad ones. So the new version of the course will have a, um, a boot camp for building good habits and a boot camp for building bad habits or breaking bad habits. Um, and uh, basically you can think of the book atomic habits as the most comprehensive discussion and analysis of how a habit works, how to break it down, what the research says, this is the scientific view of it and some practical ideas of how to implement it. But then one of the most common questions that we're getting from readers is what do I do first? How do I actually, okay, like the book is great. It's got a ton of actionable ideas. I've made some changes, but can you help coach me along with this? And that's what the Academy is for. Um, so the online program is very action oriented, very focused on uh, different exercises and actions to take each day. Uh, built not only for individuals, but also for teams to go through. So we have a couple of different corporations that have like brought their departments through or a manager will bring it wants all of his staff to be trained uh, in atomic habits and so on. So, uh, so that's the main purpose of the habits Academy is to give people a, an actionable place where they can get that material and start to implement it. 
So I was um, looking on the website, by the way, just as a reminder, it's jamesclear.com. And I noticed, uh, which just, I got such a great feeling, James, about, so you had like, you know, the Habits Academy, and the first thing that was there was the price. Hmm. And I just so love that because I, I'm always work fighting with my marketing team who, you know, they want to bury the price after 15 pages and nine hoops people have to jump through. And, you know, some of us just want to know, okay, Habits Academy, I get it. That's going to be really valuable. How much is it? You know, right. if it's 200 bucks, I'm in. If it's 30 grand, I might have to think about it. <laughs> but, um, so I love the fact that you're so upfront. And, I, you know, I, I got that from you and I got it from Seth. I just love that integrity in marketing. But, you know, the thing I want you to speak to as we wrap this up is, you know, the, the question that I ask people sometimes when it comes to habits is what is one habit, one thing that if you could, if you could change in you, as you call the identity, if you could become someone who just works out, I'm, I'm a, as you said in your book, I'm a runner or, you know, you know, I'm a swimmer or in the case of my business, you know, the key metric is inviting. If you're inviting one or two people a day to look at what you do, you know, that's our version of a sales call, right? you know, then you're a networker and you're an inviter. And so the one question I would ask everyone listening to this interview, like what could you get out of this interview that would give you a quantum leap where you could look back a year or two from now and say, oh my gosh, that was pivotal for me. The question I would ask you is what's one habit that 90 days from now, if you, if you had a different habit, if you got rid of a bad one and gained a good one, what would that be? What's the one habit that would be worth so much to you? Maybe in worth so much in a relationship, worth so much in income, worth so much in self-esteem, worth so much in health and flexibility and being able to do things. Uh, you know, like think about that. Like what's one thing that 90 days from now, if I could change it in me, it would be worth everything to me. And then map that on to the investment, which I think is, Less than 300 bucks, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, the questioning that you have there, I think is, is spot on. And there's, um, you know, there are a lot of concepts in the book that I think can help make that even more palatable and help people kind of like get into to that and figure out the right way to do it. But one idea from the book that I think is relevant here is what I call the two minute rule. So you just take whatever habit you're trying to build, whatever identity you hope to have in 90 days, uh, whatever thing that would be valuable for you to build and scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So, you know, if that, if that habit, like here's, this is a, a simple example. So I have a, um, I have a reader who ended up losing over hundred pounds. And one of the first things that he did was he went to the gym, but he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he got in the car, drove to the gym, got out, did half an exercise, got back in the car, drove home. And it sounds silly to people at first, right? It sounds ridiculous. It's like, okay, obviously that's not going to be the thing that gets you in shape. But what you realize is that he was mastering the art of showing up, right? He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week. And if you don't become the type of person who goes, even if it's just for two minutes, you don't have the chance to be the person who actually does the 45 minute workout and all this extra stuff. And I think that this is kind of like a, a surprising, but maybe a deep truth about habits, which is, a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? Like 
how can you find a small way to show up, to standardize it, to make it the normal in your life? And then once you're showing up each day or each week, well, now you have options for improving and expanding from there. And so I think that's a good way to kind of translate all that we've talked about, this idea of trying to make 1% improvements and figure out what does it actually look like for my day-to-day life? Well, how can you show up in a way that's two minutes or less? How can you automate that first movement, that first action? And once you do that, then you turn around in 30 days or 60 days or 90 days or whatever it is, and you're in a good position to improve and expand from there. Um, and so that's just kind of one way to operationalize that idea. That's profound, James. I, you know, I can do, I can do every push-up I can do in two minutes. <laughs> and even have time to rest right so you know the thing about uh if you can do 30 push-ups in you know 90 seconds well three days later you can probably do 33 and a week later 36 and a year later 150 and you know and as we get good at something we enjoy it and i think that's part of the path of falling in love with the process too James, this has been um, brilliant, really powerful, generous stuff. Thank you so, so much for your time because I know how precious that is. And you have a lot of stuff going on and a lot of people that are looking for you. Everybody listening to this live, listening to it a year after we uh, recorded it, five years after we recorded it, anywhere in the world in any language, jamesclear.com and get involved in the ha- uh, Habits Academy. That's the first thing I'm gonna do. James Clear, thank you so much. I'll be- Oh, wonderful, thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. You. Great, thanks so much. You bet. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Richard Bliss Brooks Network Marketing Heroes Podcast. If you are inspired and are ready to create your own success story, then it is time to take advantage of some of the top network marketing tools available. Pick up the top recruiting tool that has prospects saying, yes, the four-year career and the four-year career for women. Get your mindset right. Without a clear vision, success is lost. Check out the best-selling book on vision, Mach 2 with your hair on fire. Learn to think like a successful person with this step-by-step guide on how to break through your self-imposed limitations. Mach 2 Vision Training is a 90-minute, four-part video training where you get Richard to walk you through crafting your vision. It's a must for anyone looking to step outside the box and hit the ground running. For 10% off your order, use the discount code HERO at checkout. If you're serious about building your business, make sure to subscribe to Richard's blog for all the latest tools and articles. This success story is not typical. It is meant to inspire you and show you what's possible. It is not what you should expect to accomplish. Your income will depend entirely on you, your commitment, your work ethic, your leadership, and your ability to acquire customers and inspire sales leaders to join your team. Most people who start off intending to build a sales team do not maintain their motivation to continue. 